One of the most profitable studies in Scripture involves the study of what we call types and antitypes, or sometimes you hear it referred to as shadow and substance. That which, under the Old Covenant, for example, foreshadowed or typified that which ultimately came to pass. And when you consider the subject of types and antitypes, if you're honest about it, you can, you can come away from that study with no other conclusion than that the Bible has to be from God. Because there is such a beautiful harmony between those types and antitypes as well as in every other aspect of, of Scripture that man could never have consistently pinned such a book with that kind of unity and harmony and without contradiction. You have Moses as a type of Christ. You have Joshua also as a type of, of Christ. You have so many types and antitypes, and I want to concentrate on one particular one this morning and draw some lessons from, from those types that I believe are extremely pertinent, absolutely essential to our understanding of the church of the New Testament and Christianity itself because you cannot separate Christianity from the church. You cannot separate Christ from the church. And so the attitude of Christ toward the church is absolutely crucial for us to fully understand. How can we, by looking at a particular type and antitype, understand something about the attitude of Christ toward the church? I believe you'll see that as we proceed this morning. You see, we have types of the church in the Old Testament. The first of which would be the tabernacle, the place where God chose to meet his people, as it were. And as the cloud that led them by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night dwelled over that tabernacle, they were to stay as long as that manifestation of God's presence was over that tabernacle. They did not move in the wilderness wanderings after God had brought them out through the leadership of Moses out of Egyptian bondage. And when that cloud was lifted, then they were to move. This was the institution that in so many ways typified the later institutions that were to be significant in God's plan unfolding his scheme of redemption. And when we see the tabernacle as a type of the church, then we see something very significant in terms of the specificity with which God instructed Moses to erect this tabernacle. And when all of that was completed, Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it, the people of God, that is, as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them, Exodus 39, 42 and 43. And then, of course, when the wilderness wandering was completed, we see that when the people came into the land of Canaan, as God had promised that they ultimately would, though that first generation, being faithless, fell in the wilderness, all those men able to go to war 20 and above died in the wilderness, but God brought that second generation into the land of Canaan, and there Solomon, Solomon was given the 
the inspired instructions for the building of a more permanent place where God would meet with his people, and that was the temple. David was given the pattern for it, but David was a man of war who had shed blood, and therefore God prohibited him from building the temple, the house of God. But David gave the instructions to his son Solomon. And Solomon, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, built a magnificent structure indeed. And what do we see at the conclusion of that process? 1 Kings 6 and verse 9. So he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. Now the temple you see pictured here is not Solomon's temple. That temple was destroyed, rebuilt by uh, Zerubbabel in the uh, time that uh, the return from Babylonian captivity occurred. And then later, of course, Herod renovated, some use the term rebuilt, but the worship was not interrupted as Herod did the work that he did on the temple. And what you see here is a model of what would have been described as Herod's temple. This would have been the temple in which Jesus went as he cleansed it, as we'll see in just a moment. But both these institutions erected with extreme specificity, great detail, with the instruction to do it exactly as the Holy Spirit had had revealed to Moses and then to David who gave those instructions to Solomon, all of that typified something that God had in mind all along. Something that would come into existence with equal specificity with detail that God was determined that man should follow in erecting this building. But what kind of building was it? Not a physical building, as was the tabernacle, that tent. Not a physical building, as was the temple. Those were types or shadows of that which was ultimately to be the culmination of God's plan for saving man in a blood-bought institution known simply as the church. And the church came into existence on the first Pentecost following the resurrection and ascension of Christ back to the Father in heaven. And we read of that occasion in Acts chapter 2, part of which tells us, as we note here in Acts 2, 41 and 42, after the preaching of Peter and the other apostles, a part of Peter's sermon being recorded for us, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's specificity, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Later on in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The tabernacle was simply a shadow. The temple was simply a shadow. They served their purposes as God intended for them to serve their purposes, but they ultimately pointed to the institution, the last of which will ever be established, all that is needed for the salvation of mankind today, and that is the church. But as we go back in time to when the temple still stood... What can we learn from a particular incident? 
two of them, as a matter of fact, and that is the cleansing of the temple. Jesus did it twice during his earthly ministry. Once at the beginning of his ministry, once near the end, as Matthew records in Matthew 21 and verse 12. We'll focus our attention on John's account in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And if you have your Bibles, turn there and let's read together, as I read from the New King James translation, what is said about the cleansing of the temple. And let us see with these types of the temple and tabernacle as a background what that tells us today about the church and the Lord's attitude toward his church, the culmination of God's plan for saving man. In John 2.13 we read, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That takes us back to Psalm 69 and verse 9. So what do we have in terms of the background? The Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover, one of the three annual Jewish feasts. The history of this feast is found in Exodus chapter 12, where the Lord passed over the firstborn of Israel as he struck the firstborn of the Egyptians in the final plague that ultimately prompted Pharaoh to let the people of God leave Egyptian bondage. And this Passover was one of the feasts in which attendance was required for all men. And they remembered the deliverance from Egypt. The Paschal Lamb typified Christ, again a type and an antitype as we see in Scripture. The Lamb typified Christ as the true Lamb of God who would ultimately come to take away the sins of all mankind. As John introduced him in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, he said, who takes away the sins of the world. And it's interesting here that Jesus, verse 13, went up to Jerusalem. That's just another one of those indications where Scripture is completely accurate. The Bible's not a geography book, but when it makes a geographical statement, it is absolutely correct. When we go from here to Huntsville, Alabama, we don't say we're going up to Huntsville. We say we're going down to Huntsville. I don't know what sea level is at Huntsville versus Chattanooga. But if it is higher, then we really ought to say we're going up to Huntsville, if we want to be completely accurate. Well, that's what this statement is, completely accurate. Because you went up from a lower sea level to a place about 2,500 feet above sea level, which was the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus literally went up to Jerusalem. Even though he was traveling from north to south, he was going up to a level of some 2,500 feet above sea level. And the Bible is completely accurate in that detail. And he went up and he went into this temple. The Jews had three temples, in effect. 
There was Solomon's temple that was destroyed ultimately by Nebuchadnezzar, rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and then later renovated, rebuilt if you prefer, but the worship was not interrupted, we understand, during that period of time as Herod the Great had established the temple into which Jesus would have gone on this occasion. And the outer court of this temple was for the Gentiles. And this is where this event we have just read about in John chapter 2 occurred. It didn't occur in the innermost part of the temple complex, but in the outer court. And this was the place where animals were sold for use in the sacrifices. Now, they were to bring those animals with them, but many of them traveled from long distances. And so this situation enabled some to make merchandise of sacred things. It was more convenient for those coming from long distances especially to come into the outer court and rather than having brought their animals for sacrifice, they would simply purchase them from those who sold in the outer court of the temple. But they were selling these animals for far, far more than they were actually worth. I read that, for example, on one occasion you might see a dove sold for four dollars, as we think of it, really worth 50 cents. And yet they were asking and getting four dollars. People were willing to pay because it was easier to do, rather than raising and transporting their own animals. It was a case of religion made easy. Anybody doing that today in the world in which we live? Tragically, yes. Convenient religion with no real sacrifice. But then we read of the cleansing and a whip that Jesus fashioned from some cords. Does it mean that he whipped the people? No, most likely the scourge apparently was used on the animals, which would have been necessary to get them moving to get them out of there. And the others, based upon the scene and the obvious authority that Jesus was manifesting, left along with the animals, it seems. But he drove them out in a case of righteous indignation. He was angry. He was angry with a cause. And it also demonstrates that Jesus was a man, as he lived as a man, as well as deity, of strong character. He was meek above all men upon the face of the earth. Moses, as his type, was meek in his day above all those who were upon the face of the earth. Numbers 12.3 tells us. But Jesus, as the antitype, was the perfect meekness. And yet it was not weakness. It was strength under control. And here he was manifesting righteous indignation in fulfillment of Psalm 69.9, the zeal for his Father's work. And what's the obvious lesson for us right here as we see this? Zeal for the Father's work. And that zeal should characterize every child of God to the extent that there is no question about where we put our place, our priorities. And that we are those who seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, understanding that as we do, all these physical things, everything we need will be added to us, as Jesus Himself said in Matthew 6, 
and verse 33. But you know, this scene in which Jesus found himself and which evoked that righteous indignation had become all too comfortable for these Jews. They had no problem with this. They were obviously quite shocked at the reaction of Jesus. They had become very comfortable with it because sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. And generally it doesn't overtake an individual or a group of individuals suddenly and overnight. But over a period of time, no problem. No doubt at one time a desecration of the temple would have troubled these people greatly, but not now, not at the time Jesus came into the temple at Passover. What's the application to us? The same thing can happen in the church. In fact, that's how the apostasy came about in the first place, not instantly, but gradually. With a change in the organization of the church, this change, that change, ultimately you couldn't recognize the Lord's church because of the great apostasy that occurred and that lives to this very moment in time, tragically. This cleansing shows that Jesus has a regard for pure worship. Oh yes, it was in a former time. It was an institution, the temple was, that was typical of the greater institution that was yet to come. But, The fact that he had so much concern for his father's house as it was at that time under that dispensation should clearly point out to us that he is equally concerned about his father's house today. And that's not this building. This is not the house of God. The church, the people, that's the house of God today. The household of God. And after he cleansed this temple, did it stay cleansed? No. No, this was at the beginning of his ministry. About three years later, as Matthew records in Matthew twenty-one twelve, he did it again. Why? Because man forgets his reproofs and he returns to evil. And that love of financial gain can be overwhelming. The world can press in around us in various ways, and even after we have come away from it and have left it, many go back into it tragically because of the kind of pull that it has, the power that it exerts if we do not apply ourselves to spiritual growth and development as we should. Now, Think with me then about today's temples. Today's temples. Yes, plural, because, as we see from this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, there is a very real sense in which the body of the Christian is a temple. It's a temple. Or do you not know, Paul wrote, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Oh, what a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
Now, the Holy Spirit is not in our bodies in some direct miraculous way today, but I believe very, very strongly that the Holy Spirit, through the instrumentality of the Word of God, as that Word, as that Word is in us, the Spirit is in us, obviously, influencing us through the Holy Spirit's revelation of Himself to us, and so we become, we become those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us in that accommodative sense. Now, there was a time when miraculous gifts of the Spirit were available, no longer available today, and many had those miraculous gifts, and so they had the Spirit in that sense. We don't have the Spirit in that sense today, but we do have the Spirit of God within us, if indeed His Word is dwelling in us based upon our having obeyed it, and it continues to influence us, we are living in the Spirit, that is, in accordance with the teaching of the Spirit. We are being led by the Spirit today. Romans, uh, uh, The Roman letter, Paul points that out. But how are we led by the Spirit? The only way He leads, and that is through His Word. But the reality that we are children of God led by the Spirit of God through His Word, and this passage should sober our thinking as to how we treat these bodies that are to be used in service to God. Do we abuse them? Do we place in them those things that will be harmful, if not deadly? No, we should not. And so there's one sense clearly in which the body is the temple. But think with me in the same epistle, 1 Corinthians 3, a few chapters before the text we just looked at, and see how the Apostle Paul refers to the church at Corinth collectively, not individually, but collectively. Do you not know that you, that's plural, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that you, the church at Corinth, you are the temple of God? Here's that antitype. Here's the type back at the tabernacle, the type in the temple, but now what? The temple of God is the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice he says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. You know what that should bring to our minds is the very instant we're looking at in John chapter 2 of the cleansing of the physical temple back in Jesus' day. It was defiled and Jesus cleansed it. In righteous indignation. How then would Jesus feel about the temple of God that God had in mind all along, long before the tabernacle was ever built, long before the temple was ever constructed, or rebuilt, or renovated? How would He feel about the defilement of the spiritual temple that He had in mind all along? The church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't have to speculate. Paul tells us how He feels about it. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you, plural, you, you are. The church is the temple. Paul, in another of his epistles, reinforces this fact as he writes to the Ephesian church. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, there's another figure, the family of God, or the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now he's shifting his figure to a building figure. 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy what? A holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There it is. The temple of God today. The antitype of the tabernacle. And the physical temple is the church, the church of Christ, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Going back to that physical temple, Jesus in righteous indignation cleansed it twice. And we've already seen what his attitude is, to some extent, from Paul's statement, 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17, toward the church today, But I can give you some further, very clear evidence of the fact that Jesus desires, demands, and deserves to have a spiritual temple, the church that's clean, cleansed today. Remember the letters to the churches of Asia and what he wrote to Ephesus in Revelation 2, 4, and 5? Nevertheless, I have this against you. He had commended them, and now he condemns. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Think about the image of his fashioning the whip from cords and going into the physical temple and driving out the money changers. That's what he says here about the church now at Ephesus. You've left your first love. You've done a lot of good things. You will not tolerate error, but that first initial love and zeal for the Lord is gone. Please get it back or else I'll come and cleanse you. And one other example to the church at Thyatira. He wrote through John, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you are allowing something in your midst that you cannot allow with my commendation and my blessing. You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Think about it. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. You've actually grown in terms of your works. The last are more than the first but you are tolerating sin among you, and I cannot tolerate that any more than the Lord as he walked the earth could tolerate the desecration of the house of God, his Father's house, the temple. And on two occasions, he cleansed it. And then when we think about the passage in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Paul wrote, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for that he might sanctify and what? 
cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That's a reference to baptism according to the teaching of the word of God. For what ultimate purpose did he do that? For what ultimate end? To what end? That he might what? Present her to himself. When? At the judgment. That he might present her to himself a what? A polluted church? No. A glorious church. Wrinkled and spotted with sin that we have tolerated. No. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. We're not sinless individuals. But by the same token, we cannot and must not be individuals that tolerate and allow sin to perpetuate itself in our midst and still expect to be pleasing to God and accepted by Him in the final judgment. We must do all that we can in keeping with the example and the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to cleanse that which is the antitype of that which was simply a shadow and a type, the temple. He cleansed it on two occasions. And by so doing, he reminds us that the church, which he had in mind all along, is to be cleansed of sin. That we are to be a people who have been cleansed by his blood initially through obedience to the gospel and who remain cleansed as we walk in the light as he is in the light as we confess the sins that we inevitably commit before the throne of heaven and keep up that walk, we can be assured that God is pleased, that Christ is pleased, because we're determined to conduct ourselves in such a way as to present the church to him on that judgment occasion as a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This morning you can be a part of that church that was in the mind of God long before the tabernacle was ever built, in the mind of God long before the temple was ever constructed, and yet those were the dwelling places of God among his people. Today God meets his people in Christ. But to be in Christ is to be in the church. And you cannot be in Christ without being in the church. Going back to that Pentecost day, when those who gladly received his word were baptized and there were added unto them, and that is to the church, about 3,000 souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. God was pleased. They were growing. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were what? Those who were being saved. Which tells us that those are added to the church who are being saved. And those who are not being saved are not added to the church. Therefore, it is incumbent upon me to know what I must do to be saved in order to be added to the church where Christ and God meet their people today. The church is essential absolutely essential to our salvation. And therefore, it cannot be the church of my choice, but the church, as has often been said, of God's choice that I read about in the New Testament. Admission into that kingdom, that church, is achieved in one way and one way only. That is through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except 
by me. How so, Lord? By believing that I am he or dying in your sins, he said, John 8, 24. By repenting, changing your mind, or perishing, Luke 13, 3. By confessing me before men, and I will confess you before my Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. And yes, he who believes, Jesus said, and is baptized will be saved. You cannot ignore that simple but absolutely essential plan. You cannot have the man without the plan. You cannot have the man without a plan, the plan, which leads you into the institution for which Jesus shed his blood, the church. Baptism is the culminating act. And it's interesting that since we have talked about types and antitypes, that Peter himself would give us this one in 1 Peter chapter 3. Speaking of Noah and the disobedience that characterized his day in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20, he says of them who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Listen to verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must go down into that watery grave as he went into the literal grave. We must be cleansed by the blood that awaits us there and rise cleansed by that blood to walk in newness of life. Baptism does now save us, not in and of itself, but by faith that leads us to repent and to confess and then to be baptized. We're saved from our past sins and added to that which God had in mind all along, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we arise from that watery grave, we arise with the determination to keep ourselves cleansed and to do all that we can to keep the church for which Jesus shed his blood cleansed, that we might present it ultimately to him as a glorious church. You can be a part of that church this very hour if you'll obey the gospel. If you've been a faithful part of that kingdom, the church, but you know you've left it because your life is no longer in harmony with what you once obeyed, please come home. Please come home to the Lord in repentance, confession of sin in saying, I have sinned, pray with me and for me to the God who loves you supremely and will forgive you completely. If that's your need, we plead with you to come home as we stand to sing to encourage.